Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday, 15th of September, 2021. Action call as over half of older Scots feel they're not valued as pandemic receipts. By Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. A charity has called for urgent action after it emerged that over half of the over 50s in Scotland believe they're not valued for their contribution to society as pandemic receipts. Age Scotland said that its research revealed a worrying picture of the way older people feel regarded and portrayed in Scotland in the wake of the pandemic. It reveals that over one in three believe that they were made to feel a burden to society. The charity and at Scott and Forum, which questioned more than 3,500 people aged 50 and over living in Scotland, found that only one in five older people, 21%, feel wanted and that 51% of over 50s said older people are not valued for their contribution to society. The big survey found that 34% felt life was getting worse for older people, while only 25% said it was getting better. People in their 50s and 60s were less likely to agree that life was getting better than those over 70. Brian Sloan, Chief Executive of Age Scotland, said, This research paints a stark picture of how older people in Scotland feel regarded in 2021 and at times made very tough reading. The last 18 months have already taken a huge toll on older people, both in terms of the health impact of the pandemic and soaring levels of loneliness and isolation. Now it is heartbreaking to read that most older people don't feel valued by our society, with more than a third being made to feel that their lives are a burden. While many of us are looking forward to the recovery, few over 50s have an optimistic view of the future. It is clear that the pandemic has had a considerable impact, not just on physical health, but also on well-being and self-confidence of older people in Scotland. Although older people are often portrayed as helpless victims in the media, this outdated image belies the huge contribution made by those in later life, even during the pandemic. A third of older Scots, 34%, considered that their mental health had deteriorated during the pandemic. Some 53% of respondents stated that the pandemic had made them feel lonelier and just over one in three felt that life is getting worse for older people in Scotland. The research found two in three were less active during lockdown, only 48% were exercising regularly and 42% said they didn't get out as much as they used to but were still mobile. It is extremely disappointing that our research has found too many of them do not feel valued. Older people have contributed in countless ways throughout their lives and no one should spend the later years feeling they are a burden on others, added Mr Sloan. During the pandemic, 
Tens of thousands of Scots in their 50s, 60s and 70s continued to carry out essential work, including frontline NHS workers, carers, delivery drivers and supermarket workers. Many more older volunteers led the response in their communities, reaching out to those who were vulnerable or in need of help. And across Scotland, day in, day out, older people are tirelessly caring for other family members. In June, researchers at Strathclyde University found that older people were in danger of losing the ability to do daily tasks because of the pandemic. They said that after the closure of vital support services during lockdown, it is important that people get back to being physically and socially active as soon as possible to stop any decline. Moira Bruce, 85, from the Clickmanninshire Older Adults Forum said, Older people are absolutely not a burden, and it can be infuriating to hear politicians and others talk about the cost of an ageing population or pensions and bed blockers using healthcare and social care. You can understand why so many older people don't feel valued when our contribution isn't highlighted very often. They give so much to their community and country as volunteers, support for their families and the economy, whether through work, paying taxes and spending. I see older people out every day in my community going out of their way to help and support others of all ages. Older people are like an underused resource bank. Speak to them, not about them, and society will be so much richer. What a bonus. Social Justice Secretary Shona Robinson said, no one should ever feel a burden to society. Older people make a huge and vital contribution to society, to the workplace, volunteering and to their own families, particularly if they have caring responsibilities. The Scottish Government very much value our older people and this is shown through our A Fairer Scotland for Older People Action Plan, which was specifically developed to challenge the inequalities older people face as they age and to celebrate older people. In addition, we intend to include in our Human Rights Bill a right for older people to ensure equal access to their human rights so that they can live a life of dignity and independence. We know that older people have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, which is why we have also taken steps to keep people connected through £1 million to Age Scotland to expand their helpline and friendship services and the funding of digital devices and to organisations tackling loneliness. We also meet regularly with the Older People's Strategic Action Forum, which brings us the lived experience as well as the expertise to inform future policy development. This article was written by Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. Recorded from the Herald on the 15th of September 2021, from the Sports Section. Everton switch interest from Nathan Patterson to other Premiership youngster by Ewan Payton. Aberdeen starlet Calvin Ramsey is reportedly on the wish list of Premier League side Everton. It comes a matter of weeks after the Toffees missed out in a last gap transfer deadline day effort to pinch Nathan Patterson from Rangers. Everton are believed to have bid in the region of £5 million for the Scotland cap at the end of August. However, this fee was laughed off by Stephen Gerrard speaking in the wake of his side's win over Ross County in the Highlands. The Scottish son now say Rafa Benitez will turn his attention to Don's youngster Ramsey, with up to three more EPL teams monitoring his progress. The 18-year-old made his Scotland under-21s debut in last week's draw with Turkey. 
He was substituted after 62 minutes at Fir Park versus Motherwell after going down with cramp in the 2-0 defeat. And it said that Ramsey's performance until going off has capulated the defender to the top of Everton's January transfer shortlist. Leicester, West Ham and Southampton are also said to be keeping tabs on the young defender's development. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 15th of September 2021. From the sports section. Rangers. Stephen Gerrard pays tribute to former light Leon boss ahead of Europa League tie by Christopher Jack. Stephen Gerrard has paid tribute to former Lyon manager Gerard Toulier ahead of the Europa League clash with the French giants. Toulier handed Gerrard his debut at Liverpool and would play a pivotal role in shaping the midfielder into an Anfield legend and one of the finest players of his generation. The Frenchman spent two years at Lyon following his departure from Liverpool in 2004 and remained a key confidant for Gerrard as he began his coaching career at Ibrox three seasons ago. Rangers will meet Houllier's former side, now managed by Dutchman Peter Bosch, on Thursday evening as they look to get their Europa League campaign off to a winning start. And Gerrard is sad that his mentor will not be at Ibrox to watch the action unfold following his death at the age of 73 last December after a heart operation. He said, I'm very much aware of Gerrard's career. He was a man I had a lot of admiration and respect for. He gave me my big opportunity at Liverpool to play for the first team. It was a really sad day for me from a personal point of view when he passed. I wish more than anything he was at the game. He was someone who followed my career all the way through as a player and also as a manager. The amount of education and knowledge I had from that man is unbelievable. So I hope he is watching down tonight and is really proud of both teams. When a new manager comes into a team, it takes time to build a system and way of playing. It takes time for the manager and players to get used to each other. Leon have high-level players, it's a big club, a club that should be in the Champions League. They have a very experienced manager and we are under no illusions how tough this game is. We have a big respect for the team we are playing. That article was by Christopher Jack. From the Herald Scotland, dated Tuesday, 14th September 2021, from the Voices section. Fair play to Dylan, Rolling Stones and McCartney for keeping on going. An article by Mark Eady. Getting older is rubbish. It's the little things, the telltale signs that remind you old father time is ticking away and the clock ain't turning back. The twinge in the lower back. Forgetting the reason you walked into the room. Or misplacing keys that were in your hand two minutes before. I'm not ready for the knacker's yard, yet. But I'm convinced my brain thinks it's still 25, not 49. I feel slightly cheated when I see this balding stranger staring back at me in the mirror. A mocking imitation of the younger me. I couldn't help but feel a pang of sympathy when I watched Phil Collins on TV last week as he admitted he can no longer hold a drumstick and has to sit down while singing. The thought of this diminished figure attempting to breathe new life into old hits in front of a stadium full of fans seems almost cruel. I don't mean to sound uncharitable but I found myself asking when is it time to face reality and call it a day? The Genesis frontman isn't the only ageing rocker refusing to hang up the mic 
with the litany of septuagenarian songsmiths on the circuit only rising as the 60s and 70s stretch further behind us. Top of the list of age-defying troubadours have to be the Rolling Stones, who only until the recent sad loss of Charlie Watts appeared to be impervious to musical mortality. For a band once at the cutting edge of the sexual revolution, their reinvention as travelling bluesmen has been quite clever. Although Jagger's lascivious rendition of Sympathy of the Devil veers on the seedy side. Next has to be Bob Dylan, whose never-ending tour has been trundling along probably longer than even he can remember. His vocal cords have been shot to pieces for years, so I'm always surprised at fan shock when they discover the voice of a generation is now that of an octogenarian. Paul McCartney is steeped in his own legend, as his own 321 docuseries illustrates. I reckon he would happily sit in an empty room talking to himself about the Beatles. So astounded is he about his past life. It's as if he can't believe it was him, and he did that. Then there's Elton John. There's no denying old Reggie's virtuosity has left an indelible mark on pop history. At the height of his fame, he was being hailed as a musical god. But as the years have rolled by, Pinner's greatest son has risked resembling a caricature in his own Elton John tribute act. Bruce Springsteen has somehow managed to weather the ageing storm best. His Broadway performances reveal the stamina and sharpness of a man half his age. His reminiscences are warm and nostalgic. It's a remarkable show. Ageing comes to us all. Affects each of us in contrasting ways, at different times, and is as inevitable as night follows day. But if you're lucky enough to have all your faculties still in check, then why retire if you love what you're doing? So fair play to good old Phil and the rest of them. They may not be what they once were, but if it gets them out of bed in the morning, then who am I to judge? This article is by Mark Eady. From the Health Scotland, dated Thursday 16th September 2021, from the Voices section. Climate crisis? Pah! Television would rather talk cake. An article by Vicky Allen, Senior Features Writer. The planet may be baking, but it looks as if what people in the UK are more bothered about is how to bake a decent cake. The subtitles to Save the World report, an analysis of how frequently particular words were used on British television last year, found that the word cake appeared 133,437 times, more than 10 times more than climate change or indeed all the forms of climate crisis-related terms put together. It's the elephant in the room. We've been warned we have decades in which to reduce emissions to zero. But still, if television is anything to go by, one of the things we are not talking about is climate change. Banana bread also featured more than wind power and solar energy combined. Pizza was mentioned 84 times more frequently than climate crisis. 
Well, that's hardly surprising, is it? We humans think with our bellies. And talk and watch with them. Food almost topped the bill of most used words in this analysis of subtitling data from UK broadcasters, appearing 442,363 times. It's what many of us switch the telly on for. A 2016 study found that Brits were spending more time consuming food media than actually cooking. In the battle of planet versus belly, it's not surprising that food gets a bigger slice of the cake. And don't we watch television to escape reality rather than be confronted by ugly truths? That's clearly an element. Some of us don't want too many brutal honesties on our small screens. But some news-related words do feature among some of the more commonly used in the report's analysis. Government, for instance, is mentioned 293,617 times. Covid, 251,000 times. And perhaps unsurprisingly, lockdown around 139,100. God, for the record, was also a bit of a leader at 402,393. What's remarkable is quite how low climate change is. It's right down there, around about the level of goldfish or Shakespeare. Does the report note any other trends in talk about climate change? Well, it does state that mentions of individual behaviours, such as recycling, 63% increase, Reusing, 70% increase. Veganism, 16% increase. Feature far more prominently than high impact areas such as renewables, 46% decrease. And wind and solar, which were all mentioned under 500 times. Veganism, food again, in fact featured almost as often as climate change itself. What about the weather? That's almost climate. Television must have mentioned the weather. Ah oh yes, now you are right there. Weather was indeed mentioned around 200,515 times and had doubled in frequency since 2018. Television might think we don't want to hear about climate, but we do love to hear a bit of weather. This article was by Vicky Allen, Senior Futures Writer. The Herald, Friday the 17th of September 2021. News. Controversial Covid street measures should be reviewed before being made permanent, says leading charity. This article is by Deborah Anderson. A leading charity for people with impaired vision has called an independent third-party review of a project designed to create more space for cyclists, and pedestrians in our cities before they are made permanent. The Royal National Institute for the Blind said changes made to footpaths, road and segregated cycle lanes as temporary safety measures during the height of lockdown to help reduce the risk of COVID transmission through the government's spaces for people should be fully assessed. Their comments came as Glasgow City councillors debated the impact and speed of a recommendation to retain some measures which were introduced in 2020. 
The City Administration Committee yesterday voted in favour for the majority of Glasgow's Spaces for People measures to become permanent. Catriona Burness, RNIB Scotland Policy Manager, said, We and other Scottish sight loss charities have sought assurance from the Scottish Government that there should be an independent third-party national review of Spaces for People before any changes are made permanent. This should take place before any decisions on permanent alterations are made. We have also raised concerns over pavement clutter and the increasing number of proposed floating bus stops and bus borders alongside temporary cycleways. The COVID pandemic has already had significant consequences for blind and partially sighted people and new street layout arrangements may effectively extend lockdown for them. Recommendations in a report to the committee that will now be taken forward include the permanent retention of all spaces for people's segregated cycle lanes, which offer around 40 kilometres of additional dedicated cycling space, to keep footway widening measures and urban greening around George Square and Merchant City, as well as infrastructure that supports physical distancing around city centre transport hubs and bus stops, and the people-friendly streets measures at Deniston, Shawlands and Pollock Shields East should be made permanent. The removal of all footway widening measures within city neighbourhoods, except for the road closure and associated infrastructure on Kelvin, was recommended. More than 3,700 responses were received during a public consultation period on what should be retained. Councillor Anna Richardson, City Convener for Sustainability and Carbon Reduction, said these schemes were introduced at pace and at the height of the pandemic to support physical distancing however it's clear that they have proved popular and if made permanent can offer longer term strategic benefits to our transport network as well as being advantageous to our health and well-being and to the environment Tory councillor Kyle Thornton proposed to exclude a number of installations on account of a lack of local support, saying that when the consultation data was broken down to a local level, that seven pop-up cycle lanes had majority support for their removal and claimed communities had been snubbed. Labour group leader councillor Malcolm Cunning said they were concerned about making temporary arrangements permanent before legitimate questions could be and called for the issue to be continued. However, following a vote, it was agreed to proceed. This article is by Deborah Anderson. The Herald, Friday the 17th of September 2021. News. St Andrews oust Oxford and Cambridge in Times University rankings. This article is by Caroline Wilson. St Andrews University has made history after being named the top higher education institution in the UK. It is the first time in the near 30-year history of the Times Guide and UK University League tables in general that a university other than Oxford or Cambridge has topped the list. St Andrews scored highest for student satisfaction, research, teaching quality, entry standards and graduate outcomes. The university has been consistently amongst the top three in the Times and Sunday Times Guide in recent years. Founded in the 15th century, St Andrews is Scotland's first university and the third oldest in the English-speaking world. Teaching began in the community of St Andrews in 1410 
and the university was formally constituted by the issue of a papal bull in 1413. Notable alumni include the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Alex Salmond, former First Minister of Scotland. In the field of medicine, graduates include Edward Jenner, pioneer of the smallpox vaccine and physician, and polymath John Arbuthnot. Benjamin Franklin received an honorary degree from St Andrews in 1759. Alistair McCall, guest editor of The Times, said St Andrews' achievement in topping our institutional table should not be underestimated. Never before has any university other than Cambridge and Oxford finished top of our, or any other, domestic ranking of universities. It is no fluke. The university has been closing in on the Oxbridge duopoly for several years, buoyed by outstanding levels of student satisfaction, which have peaked during the past year of pandemic disruption on campus. The Leeds St Andrews now has over other universities in this key area of university performance is remarkable. Strange to say for an institution that has been around for 600 years, but topping our UK rankings for the first time truly marks St Andrews' arrival as a serious challenger to Oxford and Cambridge. In addition to the institutional ranking, the university also topped seven of the subject league tables, business management and marketing, computer science, English, Middle Eastern and African studies, philosophy, physics and astronomy and international relations. Cambridge has triumphed for the previous eight editions of the Good University Guide but dropped to third place this year. The University of Glasgow was named Scottish University of the Year and is placed 12th in the UK-wide league table, its highest ever ranking. St Andrews University Chancellor Lord Campbell of Pitt and Weem said, This welcome and deserved achievement reflects the outstanding nature of the student experience at St Andrews University. Under the inspired leadership of the principal, Professor Sally Mapstone and her senior team, The standards set in these difficult times in teaching, research and management at every level are truly remarkable. President of the St Andrews Students Association, Lottie Doherty, added, It's amazing news. It's brilliant that St Andrews has made number one, not just for the university and its staff, but for all the students here as well. It really is a testament to how well the last year has gone despite the difficult conditions. Students worked so hard to get good grades and engage with their classes and studies even though it has been online and under difficult circumstances. It is brilliant to see that recognised. I think it really shows how hard-working and passionate the students and staff are about St Andrews and about their learning to adapt to such difficult circumstances and come out number one this year. Principal and Vice-Principal Professor Sally Mapstone said, I hope the fact that the staff and students of a small Scottish institution have been able to break through the hitherto impenetrable Oxbridge ceiling will inspire others and show that the status quo is only that if you allow it to be. This article is by Caroline Wilson. From the Herald, Friday the 17th of September 2021, from the sports section... Costly defensive laps Mars improved John Lundstrom display 
as Rangers fall to Classy Leon at Ibrox by Matthew Lindsay. Far more famous and expensive footballers than John Lundstrom have arrived at Rangers amid great fanfare over the years and then, for a variety of reasons, failed to live up to the expectations of supporters or justify their transfer fees. Huge things were anticipated of, to name just a handful, Basil Bolly, Tori Andre Flo, Dragan Mladenovic, Daniel Prodan, Oleg Selenko and Philip Sebo when they rocked up to the Glasgow Giants. But their spells in government proved underwhelming and short-lived. Having to win every game the Ibrox club were involved in proved too much for some. Others struggled to accept the intense scrutiny they were under as well as the skating criticism which followed poor displays and bad results. The speed of the game here was an issue for a few. Many failed to fulfil their potential because of injuries, and more than a couple were just bad buys. It is too early, far too early, to say that Lundstrom, the English midfielder who joined Rangers from Sheffield United on a free transfer in July, has been a failure in Scotland and examine the reason why. Before the Europa League match against Lyon tonight, he had played in just eight games and had only made four starts. He is still settling into his new surroundings and needs time to adapt. Yet, it is fair to say that the fans have not witnessed the sort of form that made the 27-year-old an automatic starter in the Premier League with United for two straight seasons. Being chosen to start against a side that reached the Champions League semi-final in August last year, then was a big opportunity for him. Ali McCoyst allowed, unlike Celtic greats Neil Lennon and Chris Sutton, into the stadium to carry out his BT Sport punditry duties, acknowledged that he needed to start showing why his new manager, Steve Gerrard, was so pleased to secure his services this summer, and to atone for his reckless red card in the playoff against Alice Curtin last month. It's a massive night for him, the former Rangers striker and manager said. To be fair to the big fella, he's still got to convince a lot of the supporters, the staff and probably himself too. He started okay, but there is definite improvement in him. Lundstrom's selection was something of a surprise, particularly as Kimar Roof was omitted from the starting lineup. But Gerard clearly felt his countryman's experience, physicality and defence's attributes would be invaluable. He was, though, partially at fault for the opening goal in the 23rd minute. Ryan Kent lost the ball carelessly in the middle of the park and it was quickly shipped out to Carl Tokoli Camby in the left wing. The Cameroonian forward cut inside his, mar- his marker and curled a sensational shot beyond the outstretched Alan McGregor and into the bottom right corner from fully 25 yards out. It was some finish by the former Villarreal man but he should never have been allowed to get into his favoured right foot by his rival. The lapse in concentration was punished ruthlessly. There is no margin for error against top-class continental opposition. Lundstrom fared better in the final third than he did at the back. Just five minutes after Leon had taken the lead, he did well to burrow his way into the visitors' area. He appealed for a penalty after being barged by Brazilian midfielder Lucas Paqueta, but the Swedish referee Andreas Ekberg rightly ignored his call for a sport kick. 
His dipping delivery into the Leon box from wide on the right was crying out for Joe Aribo or Alfredo Morelos to get in the end of it, but neither of them was able to make contact. He took matters into his own hands just seconds later after a good work by Ryan Kent and Morelos down the left flank. He sidestepped Maxine Kakert and fired a shot goal that whistled just past the right post. Gerrard had predicted that Lundsson would be would add steel and presence to the Scottish Champions midfield when he landed an individual who he had described as a major transfer target. At times tonight, that was true. He complimented Steve Davis and Glenn Kamara nicely in the centre of the park and won his fair share of 50-50 balls with well-timed sliding tackles. It was much better and augurs well for him going forward. But every Rangers player needed to be at their very best to get a result against Leon in the Group A opener, and that was not the case. Kent gave the ball away again in the 55th minute, and Peter Bossy's men capitalised. Lundstrom was unable to get across to Islam Slimani before the Algerian striker slotted home from a few yards out. He still has some way to go. And that article is by Matthew Lindsay. From the Herald, Scotland, Friday the 17th of September 2021, from the news section, Real Betis 4, Celtic 3. Celtic come out swinging, but, but ultimately suffer once more after Sizzler in Seville. By Graham McGarry. Well, it's never done when Celtic come to Seville. A pulsating encounter in the sweltering heat of Andalusia may have brought back memories of their club's last visit to this city back in 2003, but unfortunately for Celtic supporters, they were just as painful in the end. Just like in the UEFA Cup final 18 years ago, Celtic certainly had their moments, particularly in a breathless first half that showcased the many undoubted strengths of Andrew Postelicoglu's style of play, as well as brutally exposing its weaknesses. Celtic deservedly built a shot 2-0 lead through Albina Yeti and the Josip Juranovic penalty, only to blow it, blow it by losing two goals in as many minutes. It was peak Ange ball, with Celtic like lions in attack, but like kittens at the back. Celtic will stick to their principles under the Australian, and that is commendable, as it is wonderful to watch. But there may be a point when playing away from home in Europe as at least a touch of pragmatism may be considered. Betis roared back to level through Jean Miranda and Janami, before Borga Iglesias and Joanne again put Celtic two behind. They got a late goal back through Anthony Ralston, but a heroic effort ultimately wasn't enough. It's difficult to be too critical though, given the circumstances. Possibly Coglu found himself going into this massive test without Captain Cal McGregor and a smattering of other starters. Celtic were down to the bare bones. Joe Hart was a man to assume the armband and lead the team out into the deafening cauldron of the Benito Villa Marine Stadium. Unfortunately for Celtic fans who had booked flights away before tickets were withdrawn, there was no way in. A couple of hundred or so gathered outside in any case and gave the team bus a huge welcome before retreating into the city's bars to see the game. They may have missed Celtic starting well 
as it almost has Jota and then goes straight away after a clever dink from Tom Rogic. Claudio Bravo getting out in the nick of time to deny the winger. Ismaila Soro picked up his customary booking soon after with a long, long way to go. The host had started sluggishly, though Carl Starfoot came up with a huge block to deny Yakin before Celtic raced up the other end and cut Betis open in, on the counter. Turnbull played a lovely ball out to Jota, who got his head up and picked out the run of a Yeti in the middle. The striker bundled into the net, only for his celebrations to be cut short by the referee's whistle for an apparent handball. A lengthy VAR delay followed, but it showed that the ball had not in fact struck the hand of the Swiss forward, and Celtic had the dream start that they had craved. It was almost two moments later, as the Yeti again got in behind, but Bravo got enough in his effort to slow the ball down, and it was scrambled away. Hart had to come up with a strong hand at the other end to keep out a powerful Andrews guard Dado header, but the main danger to Celtic at this stage was within their own ranks, with Soros skirting dangerously close to a red card after bundling over Joaquin. The home fans were being for his blood, and it seemed a matter of t- when, not if, the midfielder would be given his marching orders. He somehow survived an hour before being withdrawn. The home fans were angered again as Celtic were awarded a penalty, but it was a stonewaller. Turnbull and Ayeti exchanged passes to put the striker in on Bravo once more. The keeper came charging out and sent Ayeti spinning up into the air, leaving the referee no choice but to award the spot kick. Somewhat surprisingly, it was Juranovic who stepped up to take it, but it was soon apparent why. The fullback bulleted the ball home into Bravo's top right hand corner, and it should have been three moments later. A brilliant ball in behind from Turnbull had Jota in all too easily once more, but Bravo was equal to his dinked effort to finish. Juan Miranda served a reminder of to the visitors with a shot deflected off Ralston and hit the base of the post, but it wasn't heeded. And, after a clever pass from Nabil Fikir split the Celtic backline, there was Miranda ghosting through to slot under Hart and put Betis back into the game. The stadium rocked and heave. Celtic had to steady the ship, but they were creaking, and almost immediately they cracked again. It was another simple goal, with a ball down the side by Jackin, allowing Iglesias to break the offside trap and square for Yanami to tap into an empty net. Having made it through to half-time at least level, the question now was whether Celtic could start could start the second period as they had the first. And the answer was yes. A lovely passing move allowed Rogic to poke the ball through to Ayeti inside the area, but, under pressure, the striker skied over. Unfortunately, they were also just as porous at the back as they had been too. Sergio Canales was afforded far too much time and space out wide, with Soro ambling out to belatedly apply a little pressure. It was too little, too late, as he got his head up to fire it over a perfect cross for Iglesias to fit past Hart and put the host ahead for the first time. It would go from bad to worse. The corner was only partially cleared, and Wanmi picked up the scraps to steer a volley off Hart's right-hand post. 
To their credit, Celtic came back off the canvas and Ayeti had a goal chalked off for offside before Drogic volleyed off the post. They got their lifeline five minutes from time though as Turnbull was fouled out wide and swung the free kick in for Ralston to bullet a header home. In the end, Celtic had slugged it out toe-to-toe with a team of far greater resources and ultimately came up just short with the greater punching power of Betis ultimately proving the difference. Almost two decades after the UEFA Cup final defeat in this city, the Celtic fans still aren't over it. It may take them a similarly long time to forget this. And that piece was by Graham McGarry. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 17th of September 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Scots Festival's musical tribute to a neglected Gaelic songstress. She was the 19th century Scots nurse and poet whose songs of protest and hope made her a towering presence in Gaelic culture. Mary Vornan Oren, brackets, Big Mary of the Songs, close brackets, or Mary McPherson, from Skibost and the Isle of Skye, was, was inspired by injustice felt personally into communities through the Highland land struggle and clearances. But there is another injustice. July marked the bicentenary of her birth, which some say passed with little acknowledgement. And now the organisers of this year's Blast Festival, the Highlands Premier Gaelic and Traditional Music Festival, planned for November, is trying to put that right by honouring her with a special musical tribute. They have offered £3,000 for a new composition to honour her work at the Isle of Skye event, and the result has been revealed in Bowie Ban brackets, Influence of Women, close brackets, a new musical work by singer and TV presenter Kim Carney. With multi-award winning folk band Manran and new folk collective Starin, the commission will also celebrate the lives and work of other great female bards of the Gaeltach, including Sheilas Nakepech, Myrid Nian Lachlan and Mary Nian Alastair Ruay. But it is the work of Mary Vorn and Oren that will take centre stage. As well as the existing works of the female bards, Ms Carney will write new melodies for existing poetry and will compose brand new material inspired by the lives and values of the strong and inspirational women. She said that Bowie Namban aims to take the listener on a journey through the centuries from the rarely heard perspective of the female Gallic bard. Ms Carney said, at the heart of this commission is the female bard, their life, their legacy, their struggles and their values. Stories passed down the generations through a rich oral tradition will be woven through the performance from the imprisonment of Mary Nickerferson, brackets, Mary McPherson, close brackets, and her fight for crofters' rights to the face-down burial of female bards and the exile of others, including that of Mary Nian Alistair Ruay. Callum Alex McMillan, Development Manager at Fashion and Gale, the organisation which supports the development of community-based Gaelic arts said, As we commemorate the 200th anniversary of the birth of Vary Vorn and Oren in 2021, our programming team was keen that this year's commission would draw inspiration from her life and poetry, of which many of the themes are as relevant now as they were when they were written. Kim's Buin and Ban was very much in line with her aims, and we believe it will be a very fitting tribute to the life of Mary Vorn and Oren, as well as celebrating some of her other noted female Gaelic bards. Born Mary MacDonald in 1821, Mary Vornan Oren left Skye for Inverness in 1847 to marry Isaac McPherson. It was only after he died in 1871 at the age of 50, having been left a widow with four children to care for alone, 
that she began to write the verse that she became famous for. It was during a short imprisonment in 1872 and a charge of theft that she'd first turned to poetry, protesting her innocence and expressing her anger through Gaelic verse. The incident which ignited her ire was her imprisonment for 42 days and a malicious accusation of petty theft. The shame and anger she felt resulted in her first song, Luchna Buerla. Shortly after her release, she moved to Glasgow where she trained as a nurse and worked until 1882. While living there, she regularly attended Highland Society Cayleys and met leading advocates of Highland land reform. She would write prolifically on the issues great and small which affected her people, songs of exile, perhaps praising the beauty of the sky landscape and recalling the joys and contentment of her childhood. There were songs celebrating the sport of Shinty, and most importantly her verse recording the ravages of the Highland Clearances. When she returned home to Skye in the 1880s as Bard of the Land League, her songs drew huge crowds to rally the crofters' resistance to decades of landlord exploitation. Arthur Cormack, chief executive of Fashion and Gale, added, She became a real champion of the people during the struggles for tenure of land in the 1880s, as well as an example of a strong woman ahead of her time, actively involved in politics and championing the Gaelic language and culture, including Shinty. Mary Vorman Oren continues to act as an inspiration to and an influence on many Gaelic poets and singers. In awarding this year's Blast Commission, we indicated that we would be particularly interested in celebrating her work or supporting the creation of new music, inspired by the values she demonstrated through her songs, many of which remain relevant today. Fighting injustice, land ownership, crofters' rights, shinty, woolworking, spinning, nursing, and the active involvement of women in political activities. By Herald Scotland. The Herald, Monday, the 20th of September 2021. News. Doctor admits sending homophobic messages to colleague at Aberdeen Royal. This article is by Helen McArdle. A junior doctor has admitted bombarding a male colleague at Aberdeen Royal Infirmary with homophobic phone messages claiming that orthopaedic consultants don't want a gay in their department. Dr Lydia Crexy sent the medic, known only as Dr A, a string of texts during May and June 2019 telling him that other doctors laugh at you and comment on the fact that you don't have a girlfriend. Dr Crexy, who qualified in medicine in Greece in 2017, told Dr A that his colleagues in the ARI orthopaedics department believed he was gay or racist and wanted him sent to work in Inverness instead. The medic, whose conduct is alleged to have been sexually motivated after Dr A rejected her, also admitted making anonymous phone calls to Dr A and accessing his medical records on one or more occasion without any clinical justification. The case was referred by the General Medical Council, GMC, to the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service, MPTS, which will determine whether Dr Crexy should be sanctioned. The tribunal, which is ongoing, found that Dr Crexy sent inappropriate messages via WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger and text to Dr A between May 19, 2019 and June 2, 2019. On May the 20th, Dr Crexy admitted to sending Dr A a message on WhatsApp 
telling him that colleagues at ARI talk about him. She wrote, they comment on the fact that you don't have a girlfriend. They say that you are probably gay. Ortho consultants are not happy. They say that they don't want a gay in their department and that they should send you to Inverness. On May the 25th, Dr. Crexie texted Dr. A again, telling him that consultants and registrars were talking about you again. She wrote, half were saying that you are gay and half that you are racist and you don't want European or Christian women. There was a junior from medicine there and she was making questions about your personal life. She agreed that you aren't interested in women. Gay or racist doesn't sound good and it isn't nice that they talk about you like this all the time. On June the 2nd, Dr. Crexy sent a message on WhatsApp suggesting that Dr. A was not going to be offered another job at ARI because the consultants think you are weird. She wrote, You have never been with a girl. They have only seen you with Dr. B and they think that you are in love with him. It is unacceptable for an orthopaedic surgeon to be gay and they don't want anyone like you at the department. Dr. Crexy then insisted she was sharing the information with Dr. A because she wanted to help before adding, how do you feel that you work in a hospital that everyone knows that you are gay and they laugh at you? They said that you shouldn't be using the male changing room. You should go with the ladies. Your walk also shows what you do every night. Later that same day, Dr. Crexy, who is now employed by the NHS in Thames Valley, England, sent Dr. A a message via Facebook insisting that she had not contacted him since you told me that you aren't interested. She continued, I had good intentions. Why do you want to hurt me? I am not a whore because I am Christian and I am not desperate for a man. I also don't want to be informed about your personal life. You are right though that I am stupid. Until one week ago I was still thinking of you and I was sad that you didn't want me. Dr. Crexy is also alleged to have sent inappropriate messages via Facebook in June 2019 to a married male colleague known only as Dr. B. In one, dated June the 1st, she is alleged to have written that ARI doctors talk about your pal, Dr. A, adding, there are girls flirting with him and he prefers to be alone. His consultants think he is gay. They are upset and they say that it is unacceptable for an orthopaedic surgeon to be gay. They want to send him to Inverness. They have only seen him with you and they say that he may be in love with you. On June the 2nd, Dr. Crexy is alleged to have written to Dr. B again, claiming that another orthopaedic colleague had checked Dr. A's phone while he was in theatre, adding he saw his texts saying that he wants to make you get a divorce. There were very naughty texts about you. The tribunal continues. This article is by Helen McArdle. The Herald, Monday the 20th of September 2021. News. Parents of children given prophylactic antibiotics at QEUH falsely told it was for cancer treatment. This article is by Helen McArdle. Children treated for cancer at a hospital at the centre of a row over infections linked to its ventilation and water supply systems 
were given antibiotics prophylactically with their parents falsely told it was part of their treatment, a public inquiry has heard. In his opening statement to the Scottish Hospital's inquiry, Steve Love QC said parents were made to feel stupid for questioning what was happening as wards were closed at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital and Royal Hospital for Children in Glasgow and that some children had been left in pain after accidentally being given over or under doses of medicine because staff were too busy with room moves. He also urged the inquiry to determine whether there had been a deliberate cover-up by NHS bosses. Mr Love represents the families of 54 children admitted to the facility with serious medical problems including leukaemia and other cancers who went on to contract infections during treatment. He said they reasonably expected that the best possible medical care and treatment would be provided for their children in a suitable, safe and clean environment. What they in fact found was serious infection, life-threatening additional illnesses and a catalogue of other problems as a result of the hospital environment, the hospital water supply and the conduct of some medical staff. Mr Love said parents were frequently kept in the dark about the problems with the water supply and ventilation at the hospital. He said they were not informed about the cause of infections suffered by their children when it appears that the hospital knew many of the infections were or may have been closely related to the water supply and ventilation system. In some cases, the infections the children developed were worse than the disease itself, said Mr Love, who described a lack of candour and failure to obtain informed consent, which undermined the trust and confidence that parents should have been able to have in the hospital, medical staff and treatment being administered. Mr Love said it seems children were being given antibiotics as a preventative measure, without any explanation being given to the parents as to why this was happening. They felt they were talked to in a condescending manner if they asked questions or queried what was happening. There were examples of parents being told it was for their children's cancer treatment or for an underlying problem, which is shown to be false, said Mr Love, adding that parents were made to feel stupid or over-anxious for questioning. Complaints handling had been a recurring source of frustration for families, said Mr Love. He said complaints made by parents have on many occasions been ignored, gone without response or been overlooked by the hospital. Parents do not feel their complaints were being listened to or treated seriously. The failure of the hospital to properly address the complaints of parents is something that needs to be addressed and answered by this inquiry. Mr Love said concerns were raised about refusals or delays in providing medical records, lack of appropriately trained staff, and that staffing levels for nursing and cleaning appeared inadequate. There was also evidence of over and underdosing of patients as a result of staff being too busy with room moves, which led to painful consequences for the child patient, he said. Mr Love stressed that parents who had spoken up in the media or as part of the inquiry process fear the consequences if their child relapses. 
He said, will they be treated worse? Will their child receive substandard care? How can this fear be allayed? There must be transparency as to whether senior members of the NHS board were feeding ambiguous or even false information to junior staff to disseminate to patients and parents with a view to alleviating concerns that were growing. Was there a deliberate cover-up? The independent public inquiry before Lord Brodie is investigating the construction of the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital Campus, QEUH, in Glasgow, and the Royal Hospital for Children and Young People and Department of Clinical Neurosciences in Edinburgh. It will determine how issues relating to adequacy of ventilation, water contamination and other matters impacted on patient safety and care and whether these issues could have been prevented. It will also examine the impact of these issues on patients and their families and whether the buildings provide a suitable environment for the delivery of safe, effective care. One of the first witnesses, Cameron Goff, told the inquiry he did not expect to be put in a position where a building almost killed our son. He told how he had been left shell-shocked by the sudden deterioration in his son due to a hospital-acquired infection traced to bacterial contamination in the central line supplying medication into his bloodstream. Mr Goff's 10-year-old son was diagnosed with cancer after he became unwell in July 2018 when he was aged 7 and was found to have a kidney tumour. In early September 2018, he had an operation to remove the kidney, but Mr Goff said there was a subsequent rapid deterioration in his son after a blood sample was drawn from the central line for testing. He said as soon as his line was accessed, 45 minutes later, he was in a state, said Mr Goff, adding, we kind of steeled ourselves for dealing with cancer and the implications of cancer, what we didn't expect was to be put in a position where a building almost killed our son. And that's really, to put it brutally, a hospital-acquired infection was the point we came closest to losing our son. Mr Goff told the inquiry that the same thing happened the following day and medical staff again managed to stabilise his son. He was told the problem was a hospital-acquired infection described as a poo bug Mr Goff said that he was left shell-shocked by the experience and said it shot my confidence in the hospital an awful lot. He praised the Shehalian unit, the children's cancer unit, at the QEUH, but said he was concerned about levels of cleanliness in other areas of the hospital and said that on one occasion he found brown matter on the bed in the room that his son was placed in and had to have it changed. After that experience, he started cleaning rooms his son was put in as he was not confident they were clean. Speaking ahead of the first day of evidence, Lord Brodie said, no other group has been more affected by these issues than the patients and families from whom we will be hearing in the next few weeks. Their experiences will help inform future lines of investigation as we turn our attention to subsequent phases of the inquiry. This first diet of hearings is the culmination of a year of preparation, providing us with a foundation to ensure that the inquiry is led by the evidence it uncovers during the course of its lifetime.
Ultimately, our role is to understand what went wrong with the construction of these hospitals so lessons can be learned to prevent the reoccurrence of such issues in the future. Earlier this year, a separate independent review found the deaths of two children at the QEUH were at least in part the result of infections linked to the hospital environment. The review investigated 118 episodes of serious bacterial infection in 84 children and young people who received treatment for blood disease, cancer or related conditions at the Royal Hospital for Children at the campus. It found a third of these infections were most likely to have been linked to the hospital environment. Two of 22 deaths were at least in part the result of their infection, it said. This article is written by Helen McArdle. The Herald, Tuesday the 21st of September 2021. News. Scotland should reinvent football to eliminate dementia risks. This article is by Caroline Wilson. Scotland should show leadership and reinvent football by eliminating headers from the game, an MSP has suggested. Labour's Michael Mara received cross-party support for today's members' debate, which called for a dedicated working group to be set up to investigate further the game's now proven dementia risk. The MSP also urged the government to designate football like dementia as an industrial injury, entitling former players to financial support. While heading is now banned for the under-12s, Mr Mara said much more needed to be done. He said, The wise old men of Mount Florida created the modern game by playing the ball on the ground. They passed it. Had God intended football to be played in the air, he would have put grass in the clouds. Now may be the moment for Scotland to reinvent the game again. This is undoubtedly, indisputably, an industrial injury. I hope the Scottish Government recognises this and gives families the support they deserve. Mr Mara also called for more research into the safety of the game for female footballers. Marie Todd, Minister for Sport, said the Government was fully behind efforts to make football safer. Groundbreaking research led by consultant neuropathologist Professor Willie Stewart found footballers were three times more likely to suffer neurodegenerative diseases and had a five-fold risk of Alzheimer's. The University of Glasgow study later established that defenders who head the ball more frequently have a five-fold risk of dementia while goalkeepers had the same risk as the average person. The risk was lowest in forwards, 2.79. Professor Stewart has likened the effect to a boxer being repeatedly punched on the head. He has urged FIFA to consider eliminating headers from the sport and suggested footballs should be sold with a health warning. Last month, Scotland legend Dennis Law became the latest ex-footballer to reveal his dementia diagnosis and said he was certain that his professional career had caused his illness. A campaign endorsing the aims of Mr Mara's members bill was launched on Sunday and is supported by the Professional Football Association, PFA, and former Celtic player Chris Sutton, whose father, also a footballer, died of dementia. Mr Mara said the footballer estimates 
He may have headed the ball around 70,000 times during his career. FIFA has said further mitigations may be necessary to protect players in non-goalkeeping positions. This article is by Caroline Wilson. This article is from The Herald, date 21st September 2021, from the Arts section. Sean Connery, The Proclaimers, and David Tennant prove Scots accents are cool, no matter what private school parents think. By Mark Eady. Bathgate no more, Linwood no more, Methil no more, Irvine no more. The Proclaimers' takedown of Thatcher's cruel policies on working-class Scots in Letter from America shocked me. It sounds ridiculous to admit now, but back then it wasn't the injustice that provoked my ire. It was the fact they sung with such strong Scottish accents, thick enough to stand a spurtle in a plate of porridge. Why did the cringe grip me when hearing my own accent? The answer is simple. I didn't think it was cool. Mainly because I wasn't used to hearing it so upfront and in your face on primetime TV. Scots accents have always existed on the box, but I wasn't accustomed to them being on top of the pops. I now regard the Proclaimers as cultural pioneers. And as a nation, we've grown in self-confidence about who we are. Sean Connery's brogue seemed absent in early interviews, probably because of the need to fit into London society. But it returned in later years. Today, stars such as David Tennant, Peter Capaldi or Kelly MacDonald take pride in their accents. Rightly so. But when I was growing up, Scots accents weren't the voices of the ruling elite. Years of listening to establishment figures on TV had brainwashed me into thinking upper-class people with received pronunciation were more intelligent and better than me. No wonder I suffered from an inferiority complex when I heard the proclaimers. So it was a bit of a, a what, really, moment when I read the Times report about the Scottish Council of Independent Schools' decision to publish a mythbuster for parents. In it, the SCIS assured parents, your child is unlikely to pick up a Scottish accent, as if having one was some sort of terrible affliction to be ashamed of. The SCIS defended its actions as something potential parents overseas have raised in the past, however lightheartedly. I can understand why. As a privately run entity, it's looking after its profits, paying to the petty prejudices of its customers. A 2019 survey by Accent Bias Britain found the UK public had consistently viewed posher accents as the most prestigious, while other ethnic or regional dialects received low ratings. Indeed, Dr Alexander Barata from the University of Manchester likened accentism to racism. In France last year, politicians even voted to make accent bias illegal. I like the idea, in theory, but in practical terms it's difficult. Unless there's clear proof that the way you speak has held you back, then the subtle slights and exclusions will continue. 
Besides, how would you classify a Scottish accent and enshrine it in law? The accent of River City's Rosen Mike McIntyre is very different from posh Edinburgh. While laws aiming at tackling sexism, ageism and racism are crucial, should we add accentism, sizeism and uglinessism to the list? Our only hope is that awareness improves and prejudice fades over time. It's not ideal, but ultimately we all have a role to play by not stereotyping people because of the way they speak. Only then will we value what they've said rather than how they said it. The simple truth is, Scottish accents are incredibly cool. The stronger, the better. So be loud, be proud, and sing your burr from the rooftops. That article was by Mark Eady. This article is from The National, date 20th September 2021, from the News section. Technology developed in Scotland will enable remote patient appraisal. By Craig Russell. Pioneering artificial intelligence, or AI, and robotic technology being developed in Scotland will allow medics to remotely assess a patient's physical and cognitive health from anywhere in the world. The Assisted Living Lab at the National Robotarium hosted by Heriot-Watt University in Edinburgh, working with Dr. Para Rodriguez, an expert in cognitive assessment from the University of Strathclyde, believes this will help cost-effective diagnosis, more regular monitoring and health assessments. It will also aid assistance, especially for people living with conditions such as Alzheimer's disease and other cognitive impairments. The research facility is part of the Data-Driven Innovation Initiative and is supported by the Scottish and UK governments and partners through the £1.3 billion Edinburgh and South East Scotland City Region deal. With gaps between assessments lengthening, the care and support that is being prescribed to assist vulnerable people may become unsuitable as an individual's physical and cognitive abilities change over time, said research leader Dr Mauro Dragon from the National Robotarium. Our prototype makes use of machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques to monitor smart home sensors to detect and analyse daily activities. We are programming the system to use this information to carry out a thorough, non-intrusive assessment of an older person's cognitive abilities, as well as their ability to live independently. Combining the system with a telepresence robot brings two major advantages. Robots can be equipped with powerful sensors and operate in a semi-autonomous mode to deliver quality data 24-7. Secondly, the robots keep clinicians and carers in the loop. Health professionals can benefit from the data provided by the project's intelligent sensing system, but they can also control the robot directly online to interact with their patients, providing assistance when needed. 
The system was demonstrated for the first time to the UK government's Scotland Minister, Ian Stewart, on a visit to the National Robotarium's construction site. He said, it was fascinating to visit the National Robotarium and see firsthand how virtual teleportation technology could revolutionise healthcare and assisted living. Rodriguez added, the experience of inhabiting a distant robot through which I can remotely guide, assess and support vulnerable adults affected by devastating conditions such as Alzheimer's disease grants me confidence that the challenges we are currently experiencing to mitigate the impact of such diseases will soon be overcome through revolutionary technologies. The project combines the efforts of National Ro Robotarium PhD students Scott Alexander MacLeod and Ronnie Smith, who are developing the sensing and artificial intelligence components of the project, and Rakin Sarder, who recently graduated from the MSc programme and is building a cloud platform for telehealth robotic applications. Dragone said, we are now testing our concept with different robot platforms. These include commercially available telepresence robots, same used to allow people to attend work meetings remotely. He added, but also the latest examples of assistive robots such as the human support robot from Toyota. That article was by Greg Russell. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 21st of September 2021, from the Voices section, Andy McIver, there is a way to pay for our old age without increasing tax. Here it is. Column by Andy McIver. So that's decided then. North and south of the border, we are to have a national care service to sit along our national health service. It will ensure that older people's care needs are met, that they can live out their twilight years, often decades, in dignity, and that they're not financially crippled as they do. And what's more, it will be free. For that is what we call, we in the UK call public services, which you pay for through tax, free. Polls suggest that we are the people who are fairly content with this idea. YouGov snapped poll after the Prime Minister's decision to substantially increase tax on workers showed 44% support to 43% opposition. The numbers in favour are much larger when the question is framed in such a way that implies that there is no requirement for payment. But this compliance, enthusiasm no less, for throwing tax at the conundrum of how to pay for old age is the result of a decades-long exercise in deception by governments of all colours in both parliaments. The argument is built on the emotional presumption that we want to thank our parents and grandparents for what they've done for us. We do. And it wins the argument. It allows our politicians to sleep easily in their beds after creating policies such as the state pension triple lock, free TV licences for older people, and now the National Care Service. And, more importantly, it helps governments win elections. But, reader, we have been taken for fools, and fools we are to believe that every, that every problem can be solved by passing the hat to the taxpayer. We are indulging the politicians in their perpetuation of this myth. We are asking to be lied to. 
The problem with today's taxpayers paying for today's non-taxpayers' healthcare, social care and pensions is not all that difficult to understand once the emotion has been stripped away. Group A pays for Group B. Group A gets continually proportionally smaller and Group B gets continually proportionally larger. I could ask my primary school aged children if this is sustainable and they would say no. Group A won't have any money left, they'd say. Group A is beginning to understand this, it seems. The same YouGov poll showed that only one quarter of the under 25s supported the workers' tax increase and only one third of the under 50s, ironically, the supposedly fiscal sensible Tory voters appear to be most economically illiterate, with nearly two thirds in support, compared to one third among Labour supporters. This is the heart of an incoming intergenerational rift, the likes of which we have never seen. My generation, I've been described by democratic researchers as a late generation Xer, is the first that will be poorer than our parents. For the millennials and the generation Z which come thereafter, the outlook only worsens. Researchers have estimated European life expectancy by 2065 to be well over 90 for men and nearly 93 for women. So by then, a university graduate starting work at 21 and retiring at 68 will be non-working for almost exactly half of their life. Her children and grandchildren will pay for her to receive the state pension and taxpayer-funded occupational pensions should she work in the public sector for a quarter of a century. In 1965, when life expectancy was 70, that same women's grandparents would have been funding their parents' state pension for less than a decade. John Maynard Keynes said, When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Were they being honest? Our politicians would answer this by saying, I pretend the facts haven't changed, and if people show me that they, ha- that they have, I pretend that it doesn't matter. But the facts do matter, and the key fact here is that continually increasing state funding of non-working older people is plainly unsustainable. This diagnosis is easy, but the cure is exceptionally tricky. And it is, of course, a fair question to ask, well, what would you do about it? The answer to the question that we have to transition to a system where workers pay for their own old age when they are working. We think we do this now because governments tell us we do. They tell us that we pay national insurance to pee in to our pension. This is, of course, total codswallop. National insurance is a Potemkin tax, a construct maintained by governments to pretend that we are paying for our future. We are not. National insurance is income tax by another name. It is not hypothecated to any particular service and instead is used by the government for any means it chooses. For all we know, the national insurance we pay could end up paying for local authorities to repair streetlights. National insurance should, instead, be gradually abolished as we transition to paying for our own future. This is happening painfully slowly with the government's workplace pensions programme, although typically they have failed to make clear that its purpose is to, eventually, replace the state pension. The same must now happen with healthcare and with social care. Because this has to be a long, long process, it must start now. There are two critical mistakes to avoid, the cliff edge and the vulnerable. 
A long transition is important both for eliminating a cliff edge where an entire demographic cohort is left with no service and for establishing a safety net for those who have not been able to pay enough into their own pot during the working years. Nonetheless, the end goal should be clear. A European-style social insurance system which should pay for our own retirement, for our income, health and social care. Older readers need not to be crossed with me. They would be largely unaffected even if such a system was commenced now. Instead, it will be Generation X which would likely shoulder the burden. I, for one, would be happy to do so, simply because if the burden doesn't fall on us, it will fall on our children. They are going to have enough to clean up of our mess as it is, climate damage, government debt and so on. Let's not make it any worse by making them pay for us too. That column was written by Andy McIver. Andy McIver is Director of Message Matters. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 21st of September 2021, from the Voices section, Herald Diary, Remembering the Wit of Greavesy, by Lorne Jackson, Broken Man, the diary was sad to hear of the death of footballing icon Jimmy Greaves. Although he played for England, his greatness partnership was undoubtedly with Scotsman Ian St John. The duo brought hilarity and hijinks to the beautiful game with their memorable TV show, Saint and Greavesy. Jimmy was always quick with a quality quip. He once said of former Rangers player, Paul Gascoigne, that he was a man capable of breaking both leg and wind at the same time. Tolkien Nonsense Glasgow crime scribe Douglas Skelton has revealed that in his future creative endeavours he will be blending fantasy fiction with his love of a good mystery. I'm planning a set of stories set in Middle-earth in which a well-known character with a dual personality dons a raincoat, smokes a cigar and solves crimes, he says. It will be called Golumbo. Going to town. A recent tale about amorously inclined schoolboys travelling to Paisley motivates several readers, including Russell Smith from Largs, to point out that Paisley has a less innocent meaning when love has been discussed. Russell tells us that a friend of his was once given a lecture on the birds and the bees by his father, where the following advice was proffered. When you're going with a lassie, stop at Paisley. Don't go all the way to Glasgow. The diary is shocked to discover that Scottish locations have ulterior erotic definitions. We are now hesitant to inquire what it truly means to pop into Auchenshuggle. Hot water. I'm always taking photos beside boiling kettles, says Rita Polymer. I must have selfie steam issues. Painted brown. A friend going to work at the recent Isle of Wight festival reminded reader Gordon McRae of an ancient conundrum. Question. What is cream and, cream and brown and comes steaming out of cows? Answer. The Isle of Wight ferry. Unfortunately, changes in livery for the ferries over the years has rendered the joke nonsense, sighs Gordon. Not to worry. If Gordon ever found himself in Cows Harbour in the dead of night, surreptitiously carrying tins of cream and brown paint, he can always render the joke topical once more. Food for thought. Inspired by a diary tale about a certain twisty, turny chocolate snack, 
Reader John Dunlop asked what a most asked a most profound question. Has everybody ever had a straight whirly? Hard to swallow. A tale of intrigue and edibles. Reader Susan Wainwright tells us she'd recently joined a secret cooking society. But I've now been banned, she sighs. I kept spilling the beans. And that was the Herald Diary brought to you by Lauren Jackson. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 21st of September 2021, from the Voices section, President Biden's US travel ban was about politics, not health, by Katrina Stewart. This time of year, I'm usually in the US. I love autumn and America does autumn better than everywhere. Now is just the right time for the last straggle of sunshine, while the trees transform their leaves from thick, abundant green to flaming gold and red. It's a perfect seasonal moment. Warmth with impending Christmas, colour before the impending dark, the best of all worlds. I was going home in October, Jack Kerouac writes in On the Road, his novel of travelling across the United States. Everybody goes home in October. America is not home, but it is a beloved destination I have returned to often since a post-university road trip along Route 66. That opened the eyes, let me tell you. We drove the highways listening to Willie Nelson and Fleetwood Mac, the only cassette tapes we could find in the first gas station we stopped at. An ideal, accidental soundtrack. Last year, I had plans to be in New Orleans to take a look around Louisiana, maybe cruise along the Mississippi. This year was to be Seattle, finally making it to the original Starbucks on Pike Place to see what all the fuss is about. But Donald Trump enforced the EU travel ban and holidays became the least of anyone's worries. Families have been separated for nearly 18 months, partners kept apart and friends unable to meet, all due to our travel ban that made very little sense. Europeans have been blocked from the US since March 14th last year, a travel ban imposed under the Trump administration but left to linger under the new Biden term in office. For much of that time, it seemed nonsensical to want to travel to the States for leisure purposes. High national COVID-19 case numbers and rising anti-vaccination sentiment that saw an immunisation success story begin to fall behind other developed nations made a holiday seem hellishly silly. It was a surprise when President Biden didn't move to lift the ban, particularly when he came to Cornwall for the G7 summit and had been expected to do so then. It was a further dent in the cross-pond relationship, where the policy didn't change despite the UK ending its ban on Americans coming here. The refusal of reciprocity was labelled incomprehensible by the director of the Europe Centre at the Atlantic Council, Benjamin Haddad. When it was enforced, it made some sense, despite being criticised by the incumbent Joe Biden. But dragging it on for so long has been a bullish move, with little to back it up. Other countries, such as Grenada, have far higher case rates than European countries, and yet there was no ban on unvaccinated Grenadians, but a ban on fully vaccinated Germans. Grumblings had been increasing over the past few months, with EU diplomats making noise about the situation, and even senators making their displeasure known. 
Trump caused ructions with his America First stance, but President Biden was expected to improve transatlantic relations on taking office. Instead, he reinstated the travel ban earlier this year after the Donald Trump administration made to lift them. There was little pushback due to the COVID rates at the time, but as the month went on, patience was wearing thin. Families separated by the ban were infuriated at the sight of American holidaymakers sunning themselves overseas, while grandparents still couldn't meet with new grandchildren and partners were far apart. Boris Johnson, on the eve of his trip to the White House this week, said he would use the visit to push for an end to the travel ban. The White House has swooped in first and yesterday announced an end to the ban. Pundits had predicted that Biden might hold fast and keep the ban in place until 2022, when the midterm elections are due. But the predictions fortunately missed the mark and foreign travel will now be reopened from November, just in time for Thanksgiving. It will certainly be a time of gratitude for reunited families and friends. The US-UK flight market is worth £9 billion and has been operating at a quarter of its capacity. It may take some time for flights to reach pre-ban levels. Though, of course, it's not desirable for environmental reasons for travel to reach its pre-pandemic heights without a meaningful assessment of how the aviation industry fits with the carbon targets. President Biden ran on a ticket of promising to sort out the COVID nightmare in America and he has dragged out this travel ban in an attempt not to look soft in that promise. For an administration promising to follow the signs, the new president has played politics rather than stick to that pledge. The lifting of the ban is well overdue but very welcome for business, trade and personal relationships. Finally, I'll meet you in St. Louis. And that piece was by Catriona Stewart. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.